0: turn with me to Matthew 10. We have, uh, last week we were, the last couple of weeks we've been studying verses 16 to 23. And uh, we made it all the way to the second part of verse 17 here. The, uh, but we'll finish up this section and move on into the next one today. Uh, but uh, we're looking here in this passage, Jesus talks about uh, ways that persecution is going to come to us. And we saw last week, the first one is by religion. There at the end of verse 17, he says, for they'll deliver you over to the courts, flog you in their synagogues. And we pointed out that the, the terms courts and synagogues both refer to religious attacks. Uh, every town and village had a synagogue. It was not only the place of worship, it was the place for local court hearings uh, for violations of the Jewish law the Mosaic law and if someone violated the Mosaic law or their rabbinical traditions they would be brought before the local synagogue tribunal of 23 judges would render a verdict if you were found to be guilty they would carry out the uh, punishment and very frequently it was a flogging or a scourging uh, on your back with a whip and uh, scourge and that actually happened in Acts 22:19. 19. Paul told the Jews that before meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road, that he engaged in such persecution of believers. He says, in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. Uh, and in 2 Corinthians 11:24, 24, he himself was flogged five times in accordance with the Jewish requirements. He said, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes less one. Uh, then uh, so so religion is a persecutor and it will be all the way up to the end we saw that in detail last week there's a second source of attack it's found in verse 18 and that's persecution by government says you'll even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles Uh, now why in the world would the world persecute Christians Jesus says it's for my sake Uh, the world hates Christians because the world hates Christ Uh, The fact uh, that the target is is Jesus and not Christians themselves is seen in the fact that the more Christ is manifested in us, the more we will be attacked. And conversely, when we don't manifest Christ, we don't incite the world's wrath. Uh, The world attacks us only when it sees Christ in us. Jesus affirmed this over in uh, John 15. Verses 18 to 21, let me read it again. It says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Uh, so, and throughout the history of the church, that has been true. There's always been the same kind of reaction to the truth, because even though government as an entity is ordained by God for the preservation of social structure, it, the government is a representation of Satan's work, uh, because he's the one animating the actual function. Uh, God keeps government together and enough restraint in government to preserve human society, but it also manifests the control of Satan. So there's a very interesting tension there that government is ordained by God, and yet it's manipulated by Satan himself. When believers are suffering persecution from either religious groups then or the government, Jesus says there will be a provision for them to help them in that situation. It's found in verses 19 and 20. It says, but when they deliver you over, do not worry about persecution. How or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. What Jesus promises us here is that when we're brought before a religious or civil court, God's Holy Spirit will give to us at that time what we are to say. Those who suffer for Christ will be defended by Christ. I've often wondered whether or not I would have the courage and boldness to go through such trials. But the promise of Jesus is that in that moment the Spirit of God will bring to my heart and my mind the things I know to be true. Jesus didn't say that I would have the courage and the strength now, but rather in that hour. uh, The Spirit will give me what I ought to say. Uh, Now as Jesus continues, he tells the disciples of other sources of hatred and attacks against them that will happen. Not only from religious courts, not only from secular government courts but also from their families and society in general. Verse 21, and brother will betray brother to death, a father is child, and the children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Uh, I told you last time that Wilhelm Besser, an old German theologian, observed that only two things are stronger than natural love. One is born of hell and the other is born of heaven. Uh, That's uh, their, their love that's born of God and the hatred that's born of Satan. Both of those are stronger than natural love. Uh, The one who loves Christ will love him above all other human relationships, and the one who hates Christ will hate anyone who loves Christ, uh, including their own family. So Jesus says to expect it. If you're looking to your family for some support and comfort, you might find out that your worst enemy is right there in your own house, and that's the way it will be. So followers of Christ are going to be persecuted, uh, false religious Religion reacts towards us because it's generated by Satan government reacts because it's in the control of the prince of the power of the air the ruler of this world Families react because they can't tolerate a righteous individual in their midst Uh, But it's not just those who attack Hatred will also come from society in general and that's where we stopped last time We'll pick up verse 22 It says, and you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now the term all here is obviously not an absolute term in this context. Believers will not be hated by every single unbeliever on earth. The idea is that all people in general, as society as a whole, the last 2,000 years verifies that believers are hated by all classes, races, and nationalities of mankind. Some believers live lives in almost constant conflict with the world, while others seem to escape it entirely. Uh, Some Christians are not persecuted simply because of their, their testimony is so weak, it goes unnoticed by the world. Uh, When biblical doctrine and standards are compromised to accommodate fallen human nature, society has little argument with that kind of Christianity, and it will give very little opposition to Christians. Uh, As someone has said, the problem with Christians is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. Uh, Why is that? It's because our testimony is so weak the world doesn't even oppose us. Uh, But our world is getting so vile and godless that true believers will not have any option but to stand out from the world. And thus we will incur the wrath of the unbelievers who Jesus characterizes as wolves. Uh, Now, if we're persecuted for what Christ has done, it has to be very obvious that we're identified with Christ in what we're doing. In other words, if Christ is not evident in my life, uh, no one's going to persecute him in me. But when I'm persecuted, it's because I represent Christ. It's because he is in me living his life. Uh, The reason it is is because I reflect Christ in the world uh, to the world. So that's why I'm persecuted in Galatians 6, 17 Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You could see the the marks, the scars from the stones, the scars from the rods, the the scars from the whips, from the beatings all over his body. And to him, they were the marks of Jesus. Uh, They never were intended for Paul. No one was really that upset with Paul. Uh, He personally wasn't that big of a deal to most people. Uh, They were upset at Jesus Christ, but they couldn't get to him, so they went after his emissary. Uh, Finally, they chopped his head off with a Roman sword or axe. And even then, it wasn't because of him. It was because of who was living in him. You have the same thing in Colossians 1.24, where Paul says, I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh. In other words, I'm taking the blows intended for him. That must be a good thing because in Philippians 3.10, Paul prayed that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Uh, Paul identified with being able to be punished, not for what he did, but for what Christ was doing through him in confronting the world of darkness. Peter said, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. When the kingdom is built, Satan is going to cause people to react. They're going to rebel. They're going to ostracize you. They're going to turn you away. They're going to criticize you and condemn you. Uh, They're going to falsely accuse you but it's okay for us to stand and take the blows meant for Jesus who took the blows meant for us. Uh, in fact, that's a joy. The, the endurance of that persecution is the hallmark, the proof of genuine salvation. Uh, Jesus says it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Uh, now he's not saying that endurance produces salvation. Uh, that's totally, it's totally a work of grace. Uh, But endurance is the evidence of genuine salvation, proof that a person is truly redeemed and a child of God. Paul said in Romans 2.7 that God gives eternal life to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. The writer to the Hebrews expresses the same thing in Hebrews 3.14 where he says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end see we don't earn our salvation by endurance but we prove it Uh, continuance is a verification of being a real christian this is that the fifth point of the tulip acronym that we use to remember the doctrines of grace it's the perseverance of the saints and perseverance is what quickly burns away chaff in the church Uh, those who have made only a superficial profession of christ have no new nature to motivate them to suffer for Christ and no divine power to enable them to endure it if they wanted to. Nothing is more spiritually purifying and strengthening than persecution. Listen to James 1.12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Perseverance is what proves the genuineness of our salvation. It's because God's word assures us that absolutely nothing can separate us from, our Christ, from Christ that we can count on such unshakable endurance. We all know that great passage in Romans 8 uh, where Paul asks rhetorically, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then he answers his own question. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what is so great about the endurance and perseverance that we have to go through uh, whatever, so that we, that we have so that we can go through whatever we face. It comes from God. He is the one who gives us the strength to endure. He loves us so greatly that his true children will never permanently deny him. We may falter. We may fail at times like Peter did, like Mark did. But we will never permanently and finally deny him. I previously mentioned uh, Queen Mary I of England, a staunch Roman Catholic Uh, known as Bloody Mary. Uh, During her five-year reign, she tried to destroy the English Reformation and burned over 300 evangelical Protestant pastors and evangelists at the stake. And at that time, Thomas Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest-ranking man in the Church of England. And he was appointed by Henry VIII, and uh, he continued in that position during the reign of Edward II and into the reign of Mary I. He he strongly supported the English Reformation and he maintained fidelity to the orthodox faith and doctrines of the Protestant Reformation. But at the same time he often tried to walk the fence politically in order to maintain his position. Uh, and he was particularly successful under the reign of Edward II and during that time he wrote many treatises in opposition to Roman Catholic teachings and was the author of his most famous and lasting work, which I'm sure all of you are familiar, know about at least, the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, And uh, needless to say, when Mary came to power, she didn't like the things that he had written. And so in November, 1553, Cranmer, uh, Hugh Latimer, and Nicholas Ridley were all, uh, they were two other uh, Reformation leaders. All three were imprisoned for heresy against the Roman Catholic Church and the Queen. And however, during his imprisonment, he began to waver. Ridley and Latimer did not waver, and subsequently, on October 16, 1555, they were both burned at the stake together. Uh, On the other hand, Cranmer recanted, and he denied the truth, and he submitted to the Queen and recognized the Pope as the head of the Church, and he even repudiated all-Protestant theology, and rejoin the Roman Catholic Church. But Queen Mary insisted that he make a public recantation, and unless he did so, he would still be burned at the stake. And so he wrote and he submitted the sermon in advance so that the Queen and the Roman Catholic officials would know that he had recanted. And the day came when he was to give the sermon or else be executed. It was March twenty-first, 1556. He entered the pulpit. He opened with prayer, but as he began preaching, he broke down in sobbing and wept bitter tears. And then, unexpectedly, deviated from the prepared script. And he renounced all the recantations that he had written and signed. And he stated that since he had written these recantations with his by hand, his hand would be punished by being burned first when he was executed. And he affirmed his faith in Christ alone and rejected the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, saying, And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all of his false doctrine. Uh, He was immediately pulled from the pulpit and taken to where Latimer and Ridley had been burned six months previously. And there he knelt and prayed, and the Catholics tried to continue again to get him to recant. But he was steadfast in his profession of salvation in Christ alone and refused to deny him again. And he was chained to the stake and the fire was lit. And as the flames grew around him, he fulfilled his promise by placing his right hand in the heart of the fire until it was virtually burned off, calling it this unworthy right hand. And his dying words were those of Stephen, the first martyr of the church, found in Acts 7.56. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. My point is simply that Cranmer is an example of a believer who denied the faith, but in the end he persevered and willingly paid the ultimate price for his faith in Christ. So Christians may stumble and falter in the midst of persecution, just like Peter did. But if they are true believers, they will not completely and finally walk away from their commitment to Jesus Christ. The indwelling Holy Spirit will give them the courage to stand and the words to say at that time. They will persevere. So then, we've studied this for a few. Who are the wolves? Unregenerate men, right? Why are they vicious? Because they hate Christ. How do they attack through religion, government, family, and society? One final question How are the sheep to respond? Look at what Jesus says in verse 23. But whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Persecution is never to be sought or endured by us for its own sake, uh, nor should we intentionally bring it on ourselves, uh, supposing, supposedly for Christ's sake. Uh, we have no right to provoke animosity or ridicule. Uh, So here Jesus urges escaping persecution when doing so is expedient and possible. We're not obligated to stay in a place of opposition and danger until we're killed or even imprisoned. So one principle we can draw from this is to be wise. What did verse 16 say? Be shrewd as serpents. Uh, Colossians 4.5 tells us to walk in wisdom toward our outsiders. In other words, use wisdom in dealing with the wolves. Use wisdom in dealing with the world around you. As we confront a hostile world, we have to be wise. There's no sense in just creating havoc all around us. Uh, You know know that the world is anti-Christian, you know they don't want your message, so you must be careful how you approach them. You have to use wisdom. I mean, you can say inflammatory things and start conflicts with every step you take. Uh, You can be the proverbial bull in the China shop and just wreak havoc throughout the world, or you can use discretion like Jesus did. Do you recall what happened in Matthew 22 when they tried to trap him into taking a side against Caesar? Uh, The Pharisees joined together with their enemies, the Herodians, and they sent representatives to Jesus and asked him, is it lawful to give a tax to Caesar or not? And you think about it, Jesus could have said, You know, Caesar is a rotten, wretched, vile, no good, debauched, evil sinner who is damned to hell forever. But instead, he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Uh, He didn't compromise the truth, but he was wise enough not to say everything that could be said to perpetrate something that wasn't supposed to happen. So be careful. Uh, The best way to handle a confrontation, uh, to handle a conflict, find that and be careful. The one who faces a hostile world should avoid offensive situations. Don't go around courting trouble. Just don't make trouble. Don't don't wreak havoc. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I've become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. You have to be discreet. Uh, And while you're being discreet, you never, ever compromise the truth. But when persecution does come, don't think you're bound to stay and endure it. That was the pattern that Paul followed throughout his ministry. You can read about it in Acts 12 to 14 and Acts 17. When persecution became so severe in one place that he could no longer minister effectively, he left and went to another. He was not afraid of persecution and many times he was severely beaten before he left a city. At least once he was stoned and left for dead. Uh, but he didn't try to test the limits of the opposition. He endured whatever ridicule, revilings, beatings and imprisonment were necessary while he ministered but he le- left a place when his effectiveness there ceased. And Jesus told the disciples to continue this pattern of fleeing from persecution because they're not going to finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, this phrase isn't as easy to interpret as you might think. Right, Norm? You asked me about this last week. Uh, There are several ways to look at this. The problem is this. Did Jesus mean that the gospel would stay within the bounds of Israel until his second coming? Obviously not, because in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen he told the apostles to go and make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1, 8, he said they were to be his witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. So what does this phrase here in verse 23 mean? Well, one possible explanation that has a lot of merit is that Jesus is referring to when he returned in triumph after his resurrection. He sent out the disciples to be the lost, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and they would not complete all of those cities before he returned after the resurrection. And since he was specifically speaking to the disciples in that moment, that view seems to fit best in terms of understanding this phrase. That view is held by several excellent theologians. uh, Tasker, Mounts, Leon Morris, for examples. And then after his return from the dead, he would. Send them out, not only to the Jews, but to the rest of the world. Another explanation says that this is speaking of the time during the tribulation, uh, when there will be 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will go forth spreading the gospel, and the Jewish nation will turn to their Messiah. Uh, They're going to keep moving and moving from one city to the next until the Lord comes. Uh, And even then, they won't finish that job until Jesus returns at the second coming. Now, that view could be right, but I'm really not certain because the 12 disciples would have no idea. He was speaking of some future period of time when people other than they themselves would be proclaiming Christ. And there's nothing in this statement to indicate that this part of his statement applied to some point in time in the future. Uh, It may have application to that future time, but Jesus was speaking directly to the disciples. And so his statement would have had meaning for them specifically. Uh, But perhaps this is a case which, like many prophecies, it applied both to them at the time before his resurrection as well as the future Jewish evangelists during the tribulation. We can't be certain. Does that answer your question, Norm? Okay. But regardless of the view that one takes of how to interpret this phrase, there's a principle that comes out of it, and it is this. Don't stop going out until the Son of Man comes. Jesus is returning someday, and until then, we are to keep moving, spreading the gospel, and sharing the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Persecution will come, and when it does, don't think you have to stand there and endure it. Uh, It's okay to flee. There's no sense in standing around taking harassment and persistent persecution until you die. It's, It's true that persecution will happen wherever you go, but there will be greater reception in some places than in others. And the persecution will abate somewhat so that you're able to share Christ more effectively. Uh, We're never going to cover every place until the Lord returns. Now what's the sum of our Lord's instruction then to us in this passage? It's this. We have no right to provoke animosity. Uh, We have no right to provoke destruction. There's too much work to be done, too many places to reach. Life is too precious. Every one of us matters to God's kingdom. We've got to move to the receptive places and know that all the while God is with us, his spirit is indwelling us. And in the power of the spirit, he will help us to say the right things and to have the effect that he wants us to have. And we're to keep on keeping on until Jesus comes back and makes all things right. That's our mission. Don't worry because Jesus told us in John 15:33. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Okay, that brings us to the end of this particular section. Any questions or comments before we move on to the next one? Hearing none, let's proceed. Matthew 24 all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 42. Let's read the entire passage. It says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim from the housetops, upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you're more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. I believe that this passage is one of the most crucial, most definitive, and monumental passages ever spoken by our Lord on the subject of discipleship. Uh, in fact, in, this is the, the instruction of Jesus on the matter of true discipleship, what it costs, what it involves, and consequently it demands great attention. As we've seen as we've gone through this study in Matthew, his primary purpose is to affirm what? What's Matthew's primary purpose? Christ is King he is the king Over and over again. He has presented Jesus authority and right to reign as a sovereign king and implied in all of those affirmations is a call for people to submit to that kingship and Here in chapter 10. It's very clear Here we meet 12 men who said Jesus is our king. He is the Christ and they have committed themselves to to be followers of Christ. They had given up everything, their careers, their families, their lifestyle, their homes, their jobs, their self-determination, their self-will. And they have said, we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We will be his subjects. He will be our king. We will be his servants. He will be our master. We will be his students. He will be our teacher. And then they become, in a real sense, the epitome of realization of Matthew's goal. Now, having said that, Jesus then takes them, trains them, and sends them into the world. And up through verse 23, he directs them as to the nature of their ministry. But starting here in verse 24, we find general teaching on this whole matter of discipleship. That is, Jesus now deals with what it means to be one of his subjects, one of his followers in his kingdom. Listen, when you became a Christian, you may not have said these specific words But in your heart you said something similar. You said, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Master and King, and I submit myself to his sovereign rule over my life. If that wasn't the attitude of your heart, folks, you weren't saved. And when you said that, you put yourself right here in Matthew 10. Because here Jesus instructs those who are committed to his sovereignty, and he gave them the greatest teaching on what discipleship truly looks like that has ever been given. And that's what we find in verses 24 to 42. Thomas Huxley, famous English biologist, Darwinian evolutionist, and agnostic of the 1800s, once said, it doesn't take much of a man to become a Christian, but it does take all of him. I find it interesting that a man who clearly opposed Christianity was wise enough to recognize the implications of what Jesus taught, because that's exactly what Jesus is demanding. And so in this chapter, the 12 have been called, they have responded, they're following, they're being trained, they'll be sent out to reach the world. And from that very special sending that he gives them. Jesus transitions in verse 24 and begins to teach general truths that apply to all of us who name the name of Christ, all of us who are his disciples. We can see that by the general nature of the text. He begins in verse 24 to refer to a disciple in a very general way. And also in verse 24 is the term a slave, a very general term. In verse 33, he uses the general term everyone. Uh, verses 33 and 42, whoever. Uh, verses 37 to 41, he uses the term he who nine times. All of these are very general terms. In other words, Jesus is clearly speaking to all of those who will ever be his disciples. All of those who will follow him, who identify with him. And he gives them the principles they are committing themselves to obey. This is the essence of what conversion is. Conversion is identifying yourself as one willing to learn from Jesus Christ everything he has commanded with the implication of such learning being that you will obey his commands. When you became a Christian, you were saying, in effect, I choose to be a follower and learner of the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to whatever he instructs me to do. That's the stuff of genuine conversion. It isn't just meeting the Lord and ending it there. It's affirming his lordship and his role as teacher and your role as pupil to be brought to maturity. That was the Lord's task with the 12, and that was precisely the task of the 12 with the generation that they were to reach, and so on down through the generation since that time. That's my task and the task of every elder in this church. We all have... The responsibility to teach you, disciple you, just as you do in the sphere of your own ministry. But let me see if I can't talk about that for a moment in the context that will help us as we approach this passage. I know what my commitment is. I know what my calling is. I know God has called me to teach the word in order to build the saints to maturity. Um, I know that is the mandate that I have from God, and I'm held responsible, accountable to him to fulfill that as much as possible in the power of the Spirit of God. Sometimes I struggle with my weakness and ignorance and the flesh and the distractions of this life to complete that task, but I know I'm committed to accomplishing my task. What I don't know, nor does any teacher or preacher know, is whether or not the audience is committed to the task of learning. The only way we know It's by the response of the listeners, not by the nodding of the heads in agreement or the amens that might come, but rather by the demonstration of obedience in the lives of those who hear. The Lord faced that same thing. He knew what his task was. He knew what the truth was. He knew how to communicate the truth, but what he was looking for were open hearts to receive it, ready minds and hearts. Now, I know many of you well enough to know that you have that ready mind and ready heart, you want to receive the truth of God, and you want having to and having received it to implement it, and you want your life to be transformed by the Word of God being applied in your heart by the Spirit of God. But the real issue in the church is that the leadership is committed to doing what the Bible says to do, <coughs> and what we have to feel is that you're committed. To receiving it as we give it. It's like a radio program. It's one thing to broadcast. It's something else to tune in and listen. It doesn't do us a bit of good <coughs> to preach the message <clears throat> unless someone is listening to our frequency. You know, when verse-by-verse radio goes out, it goes out seven days a week at various times of the day and night all over the central Florida area from north of Gainesville to east of Orlando, almost to the east coast of the state, south almost to Fort Myers. That represents around 7 million people who could potentially hear the program. But only about hundred to 125,000 people tune in at least once each week. <coughs> and that's how it is, in a sense, within the church. There's a whole lot of broadcasting going on but not as much receiving. There's a lot of people who sit in church for years hearing the word taught, not really listening Uh, because if they're truly listening, they would apply it in their lives and then they wouldn't be running off into patterns of sinful behavior on a regular basis, needing correction and reproof. When Jesus called disciples to himself, he carefully instructed them in the matters of what they would be facing. And consequently, it kept those half-hearted people who weren't willing to make the commitment away. Jesus did the same thing when he talked about a narrow gate and a narrow way. He kept out the people who weren't willing to make that commitment to pay the price. And the challenge of the Lord and the challenge of the apostles and the challenge of ministers today is to find a willing-hearted people. Uh, to find open-hearted people to find a responsive group who say we will obey all the things whatsoever the Lord has commanded us we're willing and eager and anxious no matter what the price. That's the stuff of true discipleship and that's how it is when you sign up to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I think more than any passage that we have studied this passage is going to force you to face that reality. Jesus really draws discipleship down to some very clear issues. And we'll take our time as we go through this section because these matters are crucial. When I was growing up, I attended a Baptist church in which it was common to have what are known as altar calls. And through the years, I saw people who went to the front repeatedly to dedicate their lives to the Lord. And in the summers, we would go to youth camp and they would always conclude with a dedication service, uh, sometimes around a bonfire, and young people would throw a stick in the fire as a symbol of their commitment to burn out for Jesus Christ. And all of us at some point in time in our Christian walk have gone through a time in which we have experienced the cleansing work of the Spirit through the, the Word, and we've made new resolutions. Some of those we followed up on, and some of them we would find difficult to even remember. But if, if you've ever wondered what the real stuff of commitment is and where the bottom line of consecration comes and what it really means to be set apart or sanctified I think you're going to find the answer here in this passage. Uh, in fact this text is so filled with rich truth regarding discipleship it has been the focus of Christians through centuries and it's become the key point in learning Jesus' perspective on dedication to himself. If you're just sort of spiritually floating along, if you haven't really made the commitment the way it ought to be made, you're going to be slammed up against the wall by what Jesus has to say in this passage. Uh, He has some very hard things to say about commitment and discipleship. You see, when you became a Christian, you didn't just buy fire insurance you didn't just jump down out the escape hatch from hell. Uh, You affirmed the Lordship of Christ, and that means you affirmed a response of obedience. You said to the Lord, you're the teacher, I'm the learner, and you will learn all things whatsoever he's commanded you. If you come in on any other terms, it's questionable whether you're in or not at all. Now, the people who have responded to the truth of this passage are the kind of people who changed the world. We're talking about total dedication, total commitment, with nothing held back. And those are the kind of people who, in deep self-examination, came to a consecration and a dedication level that sets them a cut above everyone else and makes them the kind who make great marks on the world for Jesus Christ. I think of Florence Nightingale. At 30 years of age, she wrote this in her diary. I'm 30 years of age, the age at which Christ began his mission. Now no more childish things, no more vain things. Years later, near the end of her heroic life of service, she was asked for the secret of her ability to accomplish so much for the Lord. And she replied, I can only give one explanation, and that is this. I held nothing back from God. She kept nothing back. That's what the Lord's talking about here in this passage. Dr. Howard Atwood Kelly was a famous surgeon in the late 19th and 20th centuries. Every one of you ladies in this room owes a great debt to Dr. Kelly because he was the physician responsible for establishing gynecology as a medical specialty. Uh, He served as a professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, developed many new procedures for gynecological surgery. The night he graduated from medical school, he wrote this in his diary. Today I dedicate myself, my time, my capabilities, my ambition, everything to him. Blessed Lord, sanctify me to thy uses. Give me no worldly success which may not lead me nearer to my Savior. He went on to a phenomenal career in medicine and medical research, and many stories are told about his commitment to both medicine and Christ. One that I read was that he was traveling through the Midwest, and through some various circumstances, uh, vehicle breaking down, that sort of thing, he needed a drink of water. And so he stopped at a house, knocked on the door, and asked if they could provide him a drink. And a young girl who lived there gave him a drink of water, even though she didn't know who he was. He remembered her name, and years later, that same young girl grew up was stricken with a very serious disease and had to come to Johns Hopkins for a series of surgeries. As it turned out, Dr. Kelly was her surgeon. After all the care that was given to her, the bill was in excess of $50,000. Remember this is the early 20th century. So $50,000 back then would be about one and a half million today. And her family was not wealthy. There was no insurance to cover it. Uh, She was afraid about what to do about this great debt. (laughs) until she received the bill which said paid in full by a glass of water. Uh, Dr. Kelly was a remarkable believer. Just read about his life and his commitment and every aspect of it (laughs) to Jesus Christ, you'll be amazed. Jim Elliot, one of the five missionaries murdered in the Ecuadorian jungle by the Wayadani Indians in January 1956 wrote in his diary these words God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. That's exactly what he got at only 29 years old. A Wayadani native threw a spear right through him. It's that kind of dedication we're talking about. If you know anything about the history of revival in our own country, you know the name Jonathan Edwards. Uh, the preacher who many consider to be America's greatest theologian. He was born in Connecticut in 1703, died in 1758, 17 years before the Revolutionary War even began. God used him mightily as one of the three men, the others being George Whitefield and John Wesley, who were responsible for starting the Great Awakening, a period of revival in the colonies. He wrote articles that were widely distributed. One of them was that was extremely effective, was titled, The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners. Uh, He preached his most famous sermon in 1741 that's titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Why did God use Jonathan Edwards so mightily? Because he was willing to pay the price. He counted the cost. He, He gave everything. He had an open heart that wanted nothing other than what God wanted to give him. In the fall of 1722, when he was only 19 years old, He began writing a series of resolutions expressing how he intended to live his life at every moment. By the time he finished the list in August of 1723, there were 70 of them. I highly recommend you read them sometime. During that same time period, in January 1723, he sat down and wrote in his diary his own statement of dedication to God. Let me read you what he wrote expressing his commitment. It's a bit long, but I think it's illustrative of the kind of dedication that Jesus is looking for in those who are his true disciples. Edwards wrote this, I claim no right to myself, no right to this understanding, this will, these affections that are in me, Neither do I have any right to this body or its members, no right to this tongue, to these hands, feet, ears, or eyes. I have given myself clear way and not retained anything of my own. I have been to God this morning and told him that I have given myself wholly to him. I have given every power so that for the future I claim no right to myself in any respect." I have expressly promised him, for by my grace I will not fail. I take him as my whole portion in felicity, looking upon nothing else as any part of my happiness. His law is the constant rule of my obedience. I will fight with all my might against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. I will adhere to the faith of the gospel, however hazardous and difficult the profession and the practice of it may be. I pray, God, for the sake of others to look on this as self-dedication, Henceforth I am not to act in any respect as my own I shall act as my own if I, I shall act as my own if I ever make any use of my powers to do anything that is not to the glory of God or to fail to make the glorifying of him my whole and entire business if I murmur in the least at affliction if I am in any way uncharitable if I revenge my own case if I do anything purely to please myself or omit anything because it is a great denial if I trust myself, if I take any praise for any good which Christ does by me, or if I am in any way proud, I shall act as my own and not God's, but I purpose to be absolutely his. I think you'd agree that's true and commit and complete consecration. And because he meant what he wrote, God used him far beyond his imagination. Well... We're going to stop there, and uh, we will go back and review when we get back together again, and then continue on in this passage uh, or this this section. As I said, we're going to be here for a while, uh, but uh, we will get it get through it eventually. Yes. Yes, yes, he he was at his church that was it at Enfield. Uh, that he was, they got tired of listening to him and booted him out. And uh, he um, uh, was gone for a few years. And uh, they called him back. And he went back. And the most interesting thing to me as an expository teacher is he he picked up with the next verse where he had stopped <laughs> uh, all those years before. Yes, he was the—I don't know about that. He was the president of Princeton, uh, and interestingly, he died of smallpox. He was—he uh, was promoting uh, the vaccination for smallpox, and in those days, they used live uh, germs. And he contracted smallpox from it and died of it. Uh, he was trying to get his students to do it. That was he wanted to be an example to them, so he did it, and he died of smallpox. So, all right. Well, our time is up. Next week, I will be teaching new members, and so Frank will be teaching here. Okay, Frank, close us, please. Our Father, we thank you for what this day represents. In fact, your son came into this world. And he paid it all. He gave everything he had. Thank you. Lord, maybe follow his example.